Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Dan Connolly and Dan Madigan. We've got a hoops-focused edition of the pod here. We'll start with the women's team. They just wrapped up uh, the set, the first weekend of the NCAA tournament with a win over Syracuse. Was not very close, 83-47. Uh, Syracuse women's hoops also runs a two, three zone, which is infuriating. Uh, anyway, the Huskies move on to the sweet 16 where we have set up the great, the great NCAA tournament overlords have set up uh, a tremendous matchup against Iowa and their star Caitlin Clark. Connolly, what are your takeaways from the first weekend of action for the women's hoops team? I think it was pretty much that they took care of business. It was a pretty unique situation considering they were down not just Gino, but also Shea Ralph. So they were down two assistant coaches, had their video coordinator helping out as an assistant coach, played two teams that were, I guess, interesting matchups for them. I don't know if they're necessarily tough because of the way the final scores ended up, but high point, if you believe her hoop stats opponent, or not opponent rankings, just team rankings. They were rated very similar to Villanova, who is an NCAA bubble team right around like 80th in the country. And for reference, all of the other 16 seeds were like in the mid 150s and beyond. So uh, High Point was in like the 80s here. So they were probably better than a normal 16 seed. They didn't give UConn much trouble. I mean, UConn's offense didn't look great throughout the whole game, but they did what they needed to got the job done. And they also hadn't played in two games had been in the bubble. I don't really know if you can fault them for having an off night and still scoring 102 points. So then you move on to Syracuse and they also run a two, three zone. I don't know why they have to do that up at that school. I said this on chasing perfection, our women's basketball podcast, but like two, three zones are just what you do when you're like a high school kid coaching middle schoolers for like, community service credit and you don't actually get to practice with the team. So you just kind of throw them out there because you know, they're not good enough to actually play man. But when you have, if you recruit good players and have good defenders, putting them in a two, three zone is just making your defense worse. So I find it just a little incomprehensible, but UConn definitely struggled with it throughout the first, probably the entire first half. They really couldn't get much of a flow going Syracuse, brought a lot of pressure with their zone where when they would switch, they would really come out on UConn. UConn seemed to get a little flustered. They got stagnant, which is the worst thing that you could do against the zone. I think Paige Becker's first two shots were probably emblematic of all their issues where she just fired up these two contested shots that were off balance and both missed by a mile. But then I don't know what adjustments Chris Daly made in the locker room to come out in the third quarter, they looked just like a completely different team. They were absolutely shredding Syracuse's zone. Olivia Nelson Nadota had 13 points in the third quarter alone. They were just moving the ball very well. There was a lot of really good player movement. Paige Beckers just had this one ridiculous assist where she kind of cut across the foul line, got a pass from Kristen Williams. And then I don't even know the right way to describe how she passed it, but she almost, just like guided the ball straight without even looking to Olivia Nelson Adota. And it, that just felt like the way that they were attacking the zone. The bigs were just absolutely feasting on Syracuse. They had no answers and Syracuse just went down with their zone. It's kind of weird that Syracuse had a six, seven player in Camilla Cardoso, 
who can match up with Olivia Nelson Adota and honestly kind of outplayed Olivia Nelson Adota in the first quarter. And then you just don't put them one-on-one and you leave it up to his own. And then Nelson Adota goes off like that and you don't make any changes. I thought it was for as well as UConn played in that third quarter and as great as the adjustments were, I thought it was just really bad coaching by Syracuse too. And I felt like I, it's not like they ever had a chance to actually get back in that game or win that game, but at least keep it respectable and do something to try. They, they just didn't even try and do anything and they paid for it. Yeah. I think the zone defense can work, right? I mean, we've seen, we've seen it with some Jim Beheim teams where he's had these uber long, uber athletic guys, and they can clog up the middle. Um, <clears throat> but usually it's it's a gimmick defense that's being used for a possession or two possessions to show a different look. I remember, you know, every once in a while, Calhoun or even Kevin Ollie or Dan Hurley would throw out his own defense and, you know, people start losing their minds because it's just something that's so different uh, than, than the normal man-to-man. So it is very weird to see a team play it for the entire game, let alone one entire school both of their programs playing zone. Um, And especially even though they did have that six foot seven player in Cardozo, it's really hard to rebound out of the zone. And when you have players like Olivia Nelson, Adota and Aaliyah Aaliyah Edwards down low, who can be absolute monsters on the boards, you're setting yourself up for failure. But overall, I mean, the women just kept rolling without Gino, no issues. Uh, I was really impressed with the way they attacked the zone, because as we've seen with the men's NCAA basketball tournament, Teams can really struggle with it just because it's such a different look than what people are usually used to. And if I'm Kelvin Sampson, head coach of the Houston Cougars, playing Syracuse this weekend on the men's side, I'm taking some notes. I'm watching how Chris Daly and the Huskies, Paige Beckers, attacked that Syracuse zone and broke it down for a ton of easy buckets. Granted, one of UConn's advantages is they had the five best players on the floor at every given time, but there's still a lot of opportunities for any team that's facing Syracuse for the rest of the men's tournament to learn from that and, and kind of take it down. So um, the women look just as good as pretty much they have all season. I've been really impressed with them. Beckers isn't scared of the, of the moment. Not that we ever expected her to be, but she's pretty much risen to the challenge just like she has all year. And uh, I'm excited to see her go up against Caitlin Clark from Iowa, another freshman standout this weekend. Yep. So we'll get into um, the the Caitlin Clark matchup. One quick question I wanted to ask Connolly: We know that Nika Mule got hurt in the first round game. What's what's her status? Because she was a pretty big contributor across the season, right? Right. She missed the Syracuse game with that sprained ankle. Gino didn't have much of an update today on Thursday because the press conference was before practice. But he said that. She's a lot better than she was two days ago. He thinks in two days she'll be a lot better than she is now. I have a really hard time believing that if she sprained her ankle initially back on Sunday, that she won't be ready to go almost a week later, considering the treatment that she's gotten. Apparently she's moving better. I I have a pretty good feeling that she's going to be out there on Saturday, even if it's not official yet. Because if they don't have her, I mean, again, it, it wasn't a huge deal for the Syracuse game, but it, it would hurt them, certainly. Elite Eight, you know, starting to talk about playing some of the really, the much better teams in the country. Um, I think that could be a big deal for them. And even if she's back from the injury, you you might not be fully, you know, fully healed and back or could re-aggravate, which we don't want. Yeah, and I mean, even for this matchup against Sweet, in the Sweet 16, right, against Iowa, 
Kalen Clark is one of the best scorers in the country outside of Paige Beckers. Kristen Williams is probably going to have the defensive assignment for most of that game, but it'd be really nice to throw someone like Mule on her, who's an extremely physical player. One of the most physical guards that I've seen at the women's basketball level in it's college level in years. Uh, she, she's just relentless and <laughs> she's not afraid to, to put her body on the line and pick up some fouls, but play really physical. And, and that's a really unique look that I don't think is always seen uh, at the college level. So um, that would be, you know, if she's able to play this weekend, I think that'd be a major asset, even if she's only able to guard Clark for five, six minutes, it's just a different look than Williams or, or Beckers might have to offer. It would definitely be good to have her against Iowa in the Sweet 16, but I think the difference in this game between having her and not having her is that UConn might only win by 20 if they don't have Nika Mule instead of by 30 or 40 or 50 because UConn's a much better team. Iowa doesn't play defense. Not that they have a bad defense. They just actually willingly do not play it. So I think they have the number one or number two scoring offense in the country in points per game. And they have the second worst scoring defense in the country in points per game. So the bigger game is definitely going to be Baylor if both teams win, but yeah, I think you'd like to get her out there against Iowa just to get her back into the flow of things. And obviously a game is different than a practice. So I think it would just be a good, I guess, transition for her back onto the court. If she could play 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. All right, so so catch us up on the great debate that is uh, that has shaken the core of of women's basketball media and fandom. Caitlin Clark, she's a freshman, she's doing really well. Paige Beckers is a freshman, she's doing really well at UConn. A lot of talk about who's better. Um, can you can you just catch us up on on this beef? Dan and and uh, who is better, Paige or or Caitlin Clark? Sure. So I think the funniest thing out of all of it is the two are actually really good friends, and neither of them really cares who's better. So all this debate that's raging is just completely fan and media induced, which I think is great for the sport. It's great. Caitlin Clark, the number she was the number four player in the class. She went to Iowa because that's where she's from. Someone really was mad when I said that on Twitter this morning that apparently Iowa, the team that's only been to one final four has gotten a single top 10 player in the past decade, suddenly got a number four recruit who just happens to be from Iowa because of their program. Sure. I am confident that is the only reason it has nothing to do with the location, but she went to Iowa. She's been, I believe she's number one in the country in points per game. She's basically been more or less Iowa's entire team. She, I think, has the highest usage percentage in the country, which measures how many possessions end with this player either taking a shot, turning the ball over. There's one more thing in there that I can't remember, but how much they, uh, how much essentially a possession ends with one player. She leads the country in that. She is a really good shooter. She pulls up from deep, deep range, like Steph Curry range frequently and makes it. She's a very good passer, very flashy passer too. She can not only make the good passes as great court vision, but she can get on sports center with her passing ability as well. She's a solid rebounder. The argument for her is basically just her volume number. She's leading the country, obviously in those points per game, her numbers, her just raw numbers are all higher than Becker's, but 
Iowa's currently 20 and nine. I don't think they were ever even close to the top 25 all season long. Obviously their defense is just atrocious and it's basically all Caitlin Clark. So because she's their best player, she's obviously going to have the ball in her hands the most. She's going to be scoring the most points. She's going to be passing the most. So she's a really good player, but I think you can make an argument that if you stick Paige Beckers on Iowa, she's probably going to have very similar, if not better numbers. So the argument for Beckers is that she's way more efficient. She has a much stronger supporting cast, so she doesn't need to put up the high scoring numbers. And also she's the best player on the best team in the country. And I think there's a lot of value in that because UConn's hasn't played its normal tough schedule, but I don't think Iowa's played really any teams that are super tough. There was a game against Maryland, but Maryland's defense isn't particularly great. UConn, I mean, I don't think Iowa's been in a whole lot of games that have come down to the wire where I think Paige is very clearly proven that she's a great clutch player. She comes up in these big moments for UConn. She hits the big shots for UConn and everything that you can say about Caitlin Clark, you can say about Paige. She's a great shooter. She's a phenomenal passer. I think her on ball defense isn't great, but she's really good at reading what the other team is doing on offense and stepping in front of passes to get steals or just having quick hands to take the ball away. So you could probably argue yourself into a coma between the two because they're both very good players, but Paige Becker is the best player in the country. She's the best player in the country, not just the best freshman. And Caitlin Clark is really good, but she's just not as efficient as Paige because she's a much more volume player. Her team's not as great. And I realize that's not completely on her, but basketball among all sports is so individual driven compared to, I guess, like football or baseball. So I just feel like Paige is doing things that we haven't seen anyone do. And when Paige is doing things at UConn that have never happened, not just by freshmen, but by any players with her scoring 30 straight points or 30 points in 30 straight games and setting the assist record in a single game. And obviously the freshman assist record, she's having one of the best seasons in program history, not just freshman seasons program history. So the answer is Paige Beckers, but if you say that publicly, people are going to come at you like you are just the worst human on earth and deserve to be spited. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm hearing there's also a strong pro Yukon bias. I mean, the Yukon, Yukon women's hoops is basically the sec football of, of media coverage apparently. And there's a huge, huge media bias in favor of Yukon, the most successful team ever there. Some, someone will have to get to the bottom of that, but um, they, they will also cry bias, right? Right, yeah. I don't, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this season where, oh, Paige isn't even that good. She just plays for UConn and everyone hypes her up. Like that's spoken by someone who has absolutely not seen Paige Becker's play. I think, yes, you can say that both are great players and they don't need to be compared to each other, but that's not the fun of sports. Like the yeah. point of sports is to get angry get mad and yell at people. You don't watch sports for fun. You watch sports to get angry. And anyone who thinks differently is just lying to both themselves and whoever they're not currently yelling at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've always thought, you know, like the way we are a, a Yukon centric website, if you did like the bizarro version of that, you know, like, like a bunch of people who work together on a blog about how much they hate Syracuse 
for example, right? And you could get Yukon fans working on it, Georgetown fans working on it. And we'd all just like collaborate and put, you know, different pieces of just like, uh, you know, just takedowns and historical reviews of chicanery, uh, like the time Syracuse uh, self-imposed a ban uh, from the NCAA tournament for a season that it wasn't going to make and just really go deep on like the lowest moments of a certain school. I've always thought that would be uh, an enjoyable thing to just underscore your point of how powerful hate and anger are in sports. I think, you know, it's definitely the most heated I got this NCAA tournament on the men's side was watching Syracuse advance to the Sweet 16. Definitely more mad than I was sitting there watching UConn lose to Maryland, uh, which was not great, but uh the the feeling was was the feelings were just way different it's just so frustrating that syracuse shouldn't even be in the tournament i don't <laughs> care what they do in the tournament i hate the argument that well they're winning games in the tournament so clearly they deserve to be in no the point of the tournament isn't what you're currently doing it isn't the current form of your team it's not what they could be doing in the tournament it's did you deserve to get there because of your entire body of work and according to any single living person with the brain that lives outside of Canada and the selection committee, the answer to that was no, but somehow Syracuse makes it in. And it was the same crap when they made it to the final four a couple of years ago, they had no business being in that tournament either. And yeah. it's just ridiculous that they got in. It drives me insane. Yeah. I'm way more furious about this than men's basketball. And then the two, three zone tricks people and it tricks people. Uh, it's perfect for these tournament matchups because yeah. they never see it and it catches them off guard. Somehow the coaches have no idea it's coming and it's just, it yeah. nukes every game plan. I, I think the selection committee kind of just panics when they're doing the, you know, those playing games, like those first four games are like one of the last seeds. They're just like, should we put in this generic Missouri Valley Conference school? They're just like, you know, we'll just put in Syracuse. We'll fudge the numbers so the resume works, and uh, we'll just throw them in. We'll see what happens. We'll make something up. And right. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to def- – we've seen this pattern. They, they will default to uh, schools from major conferences, um, the, and, and especially this year. In what was a weird year, everyone only played – mostly conference schedules. Um, you had to know it was just going to be uh, a weird, weird season. So of course, of course we had high hopes for, for the Yukon men as a result uh, because, Hey, who loves a good weird season? The Yukon Huskies ride, ride a weird season all the way to the title. Um, unfortunately, they were not able to accomplish that this year. The Huskies lost to Maryland. It was, it was a, uh, Nine point difference at the end, really not even that close uh, most of the way. Disappointing way to end the season. And now we look forward to an off season that, that should be very interesting for a lot of reasons. But before we, before we dive into uh, putting on our tinfoil hats and, and figuring out what happens this off season, you know, let's, let's reflect a little bit on the one that just passed. The, the Huskies still clearly advanced. Uh, Hurley said the season was a, was a big success. I think based on going third in the big East, uh, finishing third in the big East regular season, um, returning to the NCAA tournament. Those are, those are great, great signs. The talent levels, having depth, uh, playing more competent basketball, more of the time, you know, I mean, 
we were approaching a point where we almost expected them to play well on a consistent basis, which, um, you know, that might sound really like sarcastic, but I, I, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of old UConn teams really not do that. And it's just harder and harder every year in college hoops with all the, with all the turnover and everything. So, um, weird COVID season, you know, I think, uh, so much credit to everyone for, for powering through stoppages, testing, quarantines, uh, very unusual circumstances to, to do this. And, you know, we still got a ton of excitement. The excitement is clearly back around this team. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's what I'll remember. It certainly ended in a really sour way. I would say, you know, especially the Creighton semifinal, uh, Big East semifinal and losing to Maryland, especially just kind of the way the Maryland loss went down. But, you know, I, I still feel pretty good about, about where things are. Yeah. I think overall it's hard to look, not to look back at this and realize that it, it, it was a good season, especially with all the adversity that this team faced, um, you know, off the court with, with everything that went on this past summer, uh, on top of, of the COVID pandemic. So, and, and also just that the team, you know, adhered to the protocols. There, there was a player that was unnamed that, you know, had the virus, but seems that everyone is, you know, healthy and, you know, there's no long-term issues with that. So that's always good to see as well. But I think this team had a lot higher highs in some lower lows than the UConn teams in the past that were just consistently bad. Um, but more than more often than not, this was a good team and a really fun team to watch. Um, they did lay some eggs there. You know, the, the St. John's game comes to mind, the Maryland game, of course, the Creighton game to a degree, uh, is up there too. But to me, you know, outside of COVID, I'm always going to think of the season as a big, what if is what if we had a healthy James book night for the whole season? Because I think that changes the entire trajectory of the last two, three weeks of the season. Um, I think, you know, you can't say that there's going to be games that are going to be won or lost, but I have a feeling that UConn is in the mix in a lot more of those games um, that they lost with book night out. And I think if book night was healthy, I don't think we see some of the issues that he faced in the Big East tournament um, where he was cramping up. And, you know, I think that leads to a higher NCAA tournament seed possibly a better performance, but seating was all messed up this year for the same reasons that you set them on. Everyone just played in their own conference. It was really hard for the selection committee to get a good grasp of who was actually good and who sucks. So um, I, I think it could have changed. It, it definitely would have changed the way this season went for UConn, but overall it was really impressive. I thought the development of, of guys like Isaiah Whaley, Jalen Gaffney, RJ Cole, Tyrese Martin in particular, those guys really showed a lot of growth from the beginning of the season. Whaley, you know, was more from last season to this season. He was pretty consistently good all year. And, and in my opinion, was one of the best defensive players in the country and really refined his game offensively as well. I mean, he hit some, some three pointers at one point in this year, towards the end of the season, he was shooting close to 40% from three, which, you know, he's not lighting it up. He's not taking four or five attempts a game, but that's nothing to scoff at. I, I I was really impressed with how he developed because as a freshman, he was exclusively 
layups, putbacks, dunks, and really nothing outside of the restricted area uh, was even in his offensive game. Uh, as well as the development of Adama Sinogo, who looks to be the next great UConn big man. I, I think that's a, a pretty fair thing to say based on the performances that he had in the Big East tournament and towards the end of the season. So things are definitely heading in the right direction. We'll see what this season, this off season entails. It's probably going to be one of the wildest ones in recent memory. Uh, Book Knight will likely go to the pros and, you know, that's well within his right. He's certainly ready for it. Um, even with, you know, the performances at the end of the year, he's still one of the best players in the country. He should be a surefire lottery pick. and. Josh Carlton is transferring. Uh, there may be some other people to join him. Uh, there's seniors in Isaiah, Wall- Isaiah Whaley and Tyler Polly that have the option to come back. Uh, Brendan Adams transferred out of the program after graduating in three years with an economics degree. Um, there's going to be some turnover, and, and that's okay. Uh, that's how college basketball works, and, and that's totally fine. But I think there's still a good core there with, with Cole, Martin, Jalen Gaffney, a cook, a cook. There's, there's some good young talent there that Hurley could potentially build off of. And I'm sure they'll take a look at some shooters or some backcourt or frontcourt depth in the transfer market, but there's enough talent for this team to be good next year. Um, They might need some things to break their way, but I don't think it's crazy to think that they can get back to the NCAA tournament next season. Right. Well, it's just wild thinking back to the Central and Hartford games to start off the season. Those just feel like lifetimes ago. I was thinking about that when I was watching Hartford in the America East tournament and the NCAA tournament, just how long ago that is. And I think you do kind of have to chalk up a lot of it to being such a weird year because really on both the men's and the women's side, I feel like there wasn't a whole lot of development like we normally see over the summer. It, for the men in particular, I thought Jalen Gaffney was going to make a bigger jump this year, and I thought he had his moments, but I still think he was kind of a step below where I would have guessed. RJ Cole, I think, needed a decent amount of time to shake off the rust from having sit out a full year, and I think we saw a similar thing with Rodney Purvis his first year that he was eligible. It took him a while to get going. But overall, yeah, it's I think it's a very good, I guess, stepping stone year would be the good way to put it because I think the expectations that this team could have gone to the final four or won the national championship or even gone to the elite eight. I think those were a little, not a little hopeful, depending on which round you pick. I think they were hopeful. I they definitely could have gotten that far if James Booknight carried them there. But for the most part, I think there were some very clear flaws on this team. And I think that's just kind of where you are when you're only in year three of a building process, because this entire senior class is still Kevin Ollie guys. Dan Hurley's first class here at UConn was just Brendan Adams. And he was originally committed to URI. The, his first true class at UConn was James Booknight and Jalen Gaffney. So I think now that we're finally seeing some of Hurley's own guys get in here, it's just going to get better and better. And obviously you're going to lose Booknight, but I think I really liked what Jalen Gaffney did in that Maryland game, even if he wasn't perfect, he was definitely playing hard out there. He was trying, he was making his best effort, but I I just liked the way that he played to go out and finish out the season. And then you've got 
Adama Sinogo, who was just phenomenal and got better and better as the season went on, I think might be borderline unstoppable next season. Andre Jackson really improved as the year went on. I thought he was miles better than where he was at the beginning of the season. A cooker cook, hopefully he'd be back at kind of a normal level next season because we saw how good he can be. And then you've got a very talented freshman class coming in and then you can pair all of that. Well, RJ Cole too. I don't mean to leave him out either, but, and Tyrese Martin, but I think you pair some of those guys with some instantly eligible transfers. I think we saw how well that worked out with RJ Cole and Tyrese Martin this season. There's definitely potential for this team next season. And I still feel like the foundation and the base is pretty strong for Hurley. And I think that's what matters. Even if maybe they take a step back next season, I feel like the NCAA tournament should still be a baseline at this point. Maybe they only make it as an 11 or a 12 seed or something like that. But I still feel like they should be in it in some capacity because we reached this point. And I also wouldn't be surprised if next year's team is better than this year's team, just because I feel like it's so hard outside of UConn women's basketball to project what teams are going to look like year to year, because you don't know who's going to make a big jump, who maybe won't make a big jump that you might be counting on. I think of like Josh Carlton from his sophomore to junior year. I think we all really expected him to explode and be a much better player. And then the team's recommendation that they, that he add a bunch of weight clearly backfired and it just progress isn't linear. So I think even if maybe this team isn't at the same level next year, or it's at a similar level, that doesn't mean that the arrow's still not pointing up unless obviously things really fall out, which I don't expect to happen. But as long as there's not some mass exodus or any scandal or anything like that, obviously I still feel pretty good about the direction the program's headed in. Yeah. I've been beating the Jalen Gaffney drum for, you know, ever since last year, I think. And I was a little worried that I wouldn't get to reap the benefits, but it seemed like towards the end of this season, he really turned a corner. I thought throughout this whole season, if Book Knight or Cole wasn't on the floor, the only people that could really create their own shot uh, as a ball handler were Brendan Adams and Jalen Gaffney. And that worked with varying levels of success throughout the season. But at some point when your two best scorers aren't on the floor, there has to be someone that can at least get by their man and, and kick it out to an open three-point shooter or get to the rim and get fouled or, you know, throw down a dunk or a layup. And Adams and Gaffney were the only people that were really stepping up to the plate and able to do that consistently. So Adams is on to, to better things now. Hopefully, you know, he'll end up in a good spot. And I think he could be a really good player for, for a different team. And, you know, assuming Gaffney is back next year, he could easily – you know, start alongside Cole, step into book night spot. And I think they could be a really fun two headed monster, not necessarily, you know, one of the best UConn backcourts of the last few years, but still a really solid high floor, um, good size ceiling backcourt. And I think that's important. I think, you know, guard play sets the tone for this program. It always has. So having two reliable guards and, and bringing in Rasul Diggins, um, possibly off the bench could be, you know, a really big deal for this team's tournament chances. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think to just go back to this season a little, the, the emergence and value uh, that both RJ Cole and Tyrese Martin brought speaks to what you can get from the transfer market. Right. And so um, Tyrese Martin is a name that arrived in the summer, you know, was, was ruled immediately eligible and became a really very important piece of the, of the team this year. So First of all, just, you know, if, the, if the, both of them stay, um, 
great to be returning that, but also it speaks to just how much things could change between now and the start of next season. So we've already mentioned that that Adams and Carlton are on their way out. And, and by the way, I mean, I think we all remember how much Josh Carlton just feasts on, on kind of mid-major teams uh, in his, in his time at UConn. So if he has a situation where he got a schedule 32 games of that, uh, he could, he could put up numbers somewhere. Um, so I'm excited for him for that. He's, he's developed a lot over his time. And um, as we've discussed so much talent that UConn has up there, clearly Adama Sinogo had become the, the emerging starter at that point there. Um, we're anticipating uh, a Coco cook uh, still being part of the future though. I think, you know, uh, at the very least, there's a chance he, test the NBA draft waters at, at the very least. I think that's plausible. It's an interesting argument, you know, something you brought up earlier, Connolly, just if, if, if we think next year's team will be better than this year's team, because obviously you don't have book night, but you pretty much, again, if everything stays the same, you have every other major contributor uh, returning, and then you're adding three, four-star recruits. Um, and I think there's a good possibility that one of them, so just to name the three, we got Samson Johnson, who's a big man from New Jersey, six foot 10. Jordan Hawkins, guard from Maryland. He's playing at DeMatha Powerhouse High School, just outside DC. He's, he's more of a, a shooter and scoring guard. And then Russell Diggins, who um, Corey Evans told me, reminds him of Shabazz Napier. Corey Evans is the former rivals basketball recruiting analyst who now works for the Oklahoma City Thunder of the NBA. So I do trust his, his judgment there. Um, I honestly think both, uh, both Diggins, I mean, all three, I think all three of them have great potential to be contributors in, in some way, shape or form for next year's team. In terms of Whaley and Pauly, just something we didn't, didn't touch on yet exactly. Those guys do have a, a decision to make um, in theory. There's no announcement made yet. But those guys are able to stay at UConn uh, for another year if they would like. Uh, obviously, that would be so great for the team and its chances to be really good next year or to be better than this year's team. But I honestly do think both of those guys will just, you know, move on with their with their basketball careers and uh, sign a pro contract somewhere. If it's not in the NBA or, or G League, it, it would be in a different country. But have to imagine the the smart money would be on taking some money to play basketball because you're really really good at it. Uh, so I, I think Whaley and Polly are gone. But what do you guys think? Deep down, very selfishly, I hope that Isaiah Whaley comes back. Personally, I don't think I've had more fun watching a basketball player uh, like Isaiah Whaley play since Omar Calhoun. Um, I just really enjoyed the energy that he brought to the court. I thought he was just a phenomenal defensive player and just. Just got such a kick of him. Uh, players like Sandro Mamukelashvili, uh, Quotas Wahab, any of the you know the supposedly best offensive big men in the conference, just getting absolutely dominated by Isaiah Whaley in the post, possession after possession. Um, and I just love the energy that he brought to this team. I, I thought he was way more important than people gave him credit for. Obviously, you know, not a book night level of importance on offense, but he did a lot uh, on both ends for that team. Uh, I think Polly and Whaley are probably gone. I think they're in a sweet spot where 
they're good enough to play somewhere, whether that's the G League or overseas and, and you know, probably make a lot of money doing so, or they could come back and, and be, too, you know, pretty good players at, at a high level in, in college basketball. And I think we've seen this with, you know, Morgan Tuck comes to mind. I, I think you just have to take the money while you can and just capitalize on that. I, you know, would be great to have them back. I think it would be beneficial to this team, but um, they're good enough where they can find jobs playing professionally overseas, um, especially Whaley. I think, I actually think Whaley could wind up into a, uh, a bottom a bench roster spot on an NBA team. I know that's controversial, but I, I actually really do think he could get there. Um, but there's always going to be a market for Uber athletic six foot nine post players and really athletic six foot eight, three point shooters like Polly is. So they're going to play. Um, they'll, they'll be overseas. They'll do well. Maybe they'll kick around in the G league for a little bit, but uh, I think they're long gone. Yeah. And I think they should be. I obviously would love to have either of them back. I've enjoyed watching both of them play over these last three, four years, but go get paid. You're in college. I think we all know what it's like to be in college. The school part of it sucks. It's terrible. The travel, I can't, well, I I guess the travel is better this year, but I feel like just the opportunities are so much better. If you go pro, not only can you go get paid to actually make money, you can use your likeness to go do things. You can start a clothing line. If you want, you could do like whatever you want. Now that you're out of college, you can live wherever you want. There's I, it's just, you've done your four years. It's not like they're at three years, possibly looking at coming back for their fourth. If there's no pandemic, they would have been leaving anyways. I think mentally, if you have in your head that you were planning to leave, go, go make money. I think they would make an impact on the team next year, but I think UConn could also obviously survive their departures because they've been planning for it. So yeah, it, it would be nice, but I feel like it would almost be, it would almost be bad for them if UConn took them back because I feel like sometimes you just got to give the, I guess, tough love is the right word. You got to push them out of the nest and just say, all right, go, come on. It, it's your time to go pro. This is where everyone else does it. Even if you have that extra year, unless one of them really wants to go pursue a master's degree, which would also be great. I mean, that's a, also a pretty good alternative if you're going to get paid to they're not get paid. If you're going to get a master's degree for school or something, then I think that would be valuable. But if you're not planning on doing that, go get paid, get out of here and have, I mean, I think Isaiah Whaley is just going to destroy Europe for the next like 10, 15 years. He's just going to dominate over there. Just like Jalen Adams, I think will absolutely is going to light up Europe. So so Jalen Adams is lighting up the G league right now. So uh, show some respect, but uh, yeah, with, with, with Polly and, and Whaley, they've to, to, underline your point, like they've basically maxed out the value they can get from their time in college. They're not going to improve their stock anymore. Um, and, and while we are here, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but after the Maryland loss, our, our mentions got flooded with people saying James Booknight needs to stay for another year to get stronger and prove himself or whatever. And it's just like, Oh, guys, this is not 1992, you know, like, the, and, and even in 1992, that is an outdated way of thinking about it. Um, James Booknight, you know, unless something is very, very, has gone very, very wrong for him in some way, uh, he's gone. 
uh, and, and he should be. Uh, he's going to be a top 15 pick, uh, probably a little higher than that. Um, it's, it's a real shame that his last season at UConn, you know, this really unique and fun, dynamic, smooth talent uh, like, like James Booknight, uh, it's, it's a real shame that this had to be his final year, uh, you know, a year where they only played 23 games and no non-conference slate and, and, and all that. And we didn't get a chance to root him on at, at Madison Square Garden, but he's got to go and, and you've got to let go of that thing inside of you that thinks you can only improve at college. Um, that, that, you know, there's not some huge risk that athletes take by staying for another year. James Booknight's gone. And as we were saying, in all likelihood, Whaley and Polly are, are probably moving on too. I think that's probably the smart way for us to think moving forward, even in the absence of an official announcement from any of them. Right. And I think it's fair to say that Booknight didn't have a great game in that Maryland game, and it would have gone differently if he played well in that game. And I think that's a totally fair criticism to have of him. I think it's fair to say he didn't necessarily play great in the Creighton game where they got knocked out of the Big East tournament. But at the same time, you're talking about two games and granted, they're the most important games of the season. But just because he doesn't play well in these two games, like, how is that any different than when he scored 40 points against Creighton earlier in the season. It's not like all of a sudden his stock shot up miles with that, but then they went, Oh, he didn't play great against Maryland here. Well, he's not even on my draft board anymore. I feel like the way that college fans look at the game and the way that NBA fans and especially NBA front offices look at the game, if anything, he'd probably hurt his stock by going back to college because if I don't really think the NBA makes much of its decisions based off production in college. And if they do make decisions like that, it's usually either later in the first round where you don't have as much of that potential, that superstar potential. And you're looking for bench filler and guys. I like the, the person that comes to mind for me is like Peyton Pritchard on the Celtics where really solid NBA player had a good college career. And then in the second round, but NBA teams value that youth so much and having that year. And like you said, you can, they can develop in the NBA. So I think it's mostly for them looking at book skill set and his, I guess, intangibles more so than anything to do with their, the stat line, because that's what matters to them. And I think, I think Dave board just wrote an article that compared him similarly to Andre Drummond, but it makes sense. Like Andre Drummond really was not that outstanding at UConn numbers wise, but there was no doubt that he was going to go high in the NBA draft. And it's, again, it's the same thing. It's not what the stats say. It's what the quote unquote potential is. And I don't think book Knight would do himself any favors. Maybe he would get himself up five, six draft slots by coming back. But even still, I don't, I don't know if that extra year him being, I don't know what he is, if he's 20 or he'd be 21 next year, but even regardless, I think that extra year would probably hurt him more than it would help him. And it's another year that he doesn't get to make a lot of money. And might get hurt. There, there's just no reason to risk it. There's no, I, I think maybe if the NIL ever comes into play, I think there's, you know, maybe a situation where you could justify it, but even then, this is probably more of a conversation that we're going to have with some of the next stars of the women's basketball team and not the men's team, just because the NBA money is just a different animal. Um, 
I saw somewhere today that Otto Porter has made like 120 something million dollars in his NBA career and that he would be like one of the top 10 earners in the NFL all time. And Otto Porter is, is a fine player, but he's, you know, he's not one of the best players in the NBA. I mean, the money's just different, but no, I book night is pretty much a consensus lottery pick top 15 pick. Now Um, we've seen that the talent, the 40 point game against Creighton, some of the performances he had as a freshman were, were just phenomenal. I don't, you know, it would have been nice for him to have a, a deep tournament run to add that to his resume for sure, but it's not something that's necessary. And, and even NCAA tournament success doesn't correlate to success in the NBA at all. So um, I think he's going to be a, a good NBA player for a long time. And I'm excited to, you know, root for him at the next level. But uh, I think his time at UConn is done. And it's a bummer that, you know, it just sucks that he had that 40 point game at Gamble. Uh, that which I believe was the Big East opener, unofficially because the, the St. John's game got postponed, um, and there was no fans there. Like I just think it would have been a madhouse for that game, and that's that's the bummer is that we got robbed as fans, justifiably, but just weren't able to be in the building for Book Knight's last season at UConn, where he just had some incredible plays and definitely going to be remembered as as one of the best players that the Huskies have had. Uh, in the last few years and, and maybe this entire decade. Right. Well, I just wanted to hit on a quick point you made that I thought the same thing where in the women's basketball game, the WNBA allows players that turn 22 the year of the draft to go pro. And like, as of now, I fully support any player that goes and takes that money because you only have so much time. But if NIL is a thing by the time like Paige Beckers is a senior where Paige Beckers can leave early, she's going to make a ridiculous amount of money on NIL and that all that stuff is probably going to be what supports her throughout her career. Because even though the WNBA pay is better and even though the pay in Europe is okay, I guess like compared to like a normal person, it's still pretty measly compared to what these guys would even get in Europe or in the NBA. So if she's making most of her money off of that, then yeah, I think it's very possible that she could stay for a senior year, but when you're talking, like you said, about not just a couple million dollars, but just truckloads of money, more money than any of us can even fathom ever having. There's absolutely no way that you can look at a guy and be like, no, he should forfeit that for an entire year just so that he can maybe get picked five spots higher. And again, probably will not. Uh, Again, this is not 2003. This is not uh, 1993, you don't need to be a proven, you don't even need to be a proven college commodity to be a high NBA draft pick. And James Booknight was a proven college commodity. He just was a little injured at the end of this, this season. So yeah, I mean, I just, it's, it's a crazy thing. I did just want to say, you know, NCAA tournament success, it did help Shabazz Napier because then LeBron tweeted, I love Shabazz Napier. And then the Miami Heat drafted Shabazz, or they traded for him on draft day, same thing. Uh, The Heat acquired Shabazz Napier in hopes of holding on to LeBron in his free agency year, but he ended up uh, going back to Cleveland. But Yeah, and that's that's a totally different scenario. Like Shabazz was even as good of a player as he is and, and a UConn legend he was a fringe NBA player and that run kind of vaulted him into the conversation and into the, you know, the end of the first round book night 
came to UConn as a potential NBA player already, played his way onto the mock drafts in the first round or so this season, and then went bananas and vaulted into the lottery. It's, it's similar though. Like you're saying, there's always going to be a few people that benefit from March Madness for sure. Um, but James Booknight doesn't need that to be one of the best players in the NBA draft class. So again, looking forward, we've got um, all of these players, you know, the tra- again, we, the transfer market, we cannot understate how it is going to be a thing. We're not against it. It's a good thing, I think, for, for kids to be able to have options of where to go. And I think something to just consider is that uh, while there are lots of names in the transfer portal, um, it's possible that not all of them end up even leaving the school that, that they're currently at. Um, I don't think that's the case for, for Adams or Carlton here, but just, just as a, as a note that that does happen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think again, to just go back to something earlier, uh, I think there's, there's lots of reason for optimism around next year's team. The, the incoming freshman class is, really, really strong, solid across the board and so much good depth and talent returning. Again, as, as long as something crazy doesn't happen, as long as we don't see roster defections, um, I, I think there's lots of reason to believe it will be a, a better team next year. A more, sorry, let me phrase that uh, more directly, a more successful team uh, next year in terms of maybe same same or similar regular season finish. You can never kind of predict those things, but I could see just a, just a more consistent team uh, that, that has its act together a little bit more often um, just with another year under the coaching and the team and all that and having, having depth and, and having lots of good depth. So um, I'm optimistic, but we'll have to just see what we have to just acknowledge is that every off season there's, there's going to be, some uncertainty to still deal with. I think one interesting thing for next season that we might not be used to is I think the offense could be very post-oriented and run through the bigs because, I mean, we haven't seen that in at least a decade. I don't know how much longer before that because, like, I remember watching those, like, 09 teams and the 06 teams, but I don't have a great recollection of their offensive style or anything. But you... Adama Sanogo, I think you could make an argument that he was their best player down the stretch. And when he is staying out of foul trouble and is getting the ball on a consistent basis, very, very few teams have someone with the ability to defend him. And with an entire off season where he can be in the gym, improve, get better, continue to improve. He's going to be possibly the focal point of the team next year. You get a cook back. Obviously we all know what he can do. Samson Johnson coming in. He's just huge. He's got such a huge wingspan. He's so tall. And those are probably going to be three very key players for this team. And obviously you still have the guards. It's not like the guards are going to be completely irrelevant here, but I just feel like with how good we've seen both Sonogo and a cook play, I wouldn't be surprised if those two are the focuses of the offense. And then you can then take the pressure off the guards like RJ and Gaffney and Diggins and Hawkins and just play off those bigs and kind of run an inside out offense. So I think that just could be some, something exciting to look forward to. So we'll end it with this. If, if, if you did have um, 
a magic wand. And, and we don't have to say the specific player, but if, if you were just going, you know, who do you want UConn to add in the transfer market? What kind of player would you, would you want them to be going for here uh, to add to this current assemblage of talent? I think probably a three and D guy. I still don't really feel great about their three point shooting. I think Tyrese Martin is very streaky. I think RJ Cole can knock him down, but someone, I mean, Tyler Polly when he was on was phenomenal, but then he also went through very cold stretches. I think just someone who can consistently knock down the three ball and can take some of the pressure off those bigs and space the floor a little bit. And then also just play strong defense. Other than that, I feel like they don't have a ton of holes, but yeah, their three point shooting doesn't give me a ton of optimism as the roster is currently constructed. Yeah. So I, I think Jordan Hawkins might be able to solve some of those problems. He's regarded as a pretty good shooter, um, but that's a lot of pressure to put on a freshman and it's not a guarantee that he's going to be able to have enough minutes to really act on that. So I agree, Dan, I think they really need a three point shooter. I think between Samson Johnson and Adama Sanogo and, and maybe Richie Springs, if we, if we see some Richie Springs next year, there's going to be enough post defense there to kind of figure that out. But I think shooting is an easy add and something that is usually brought in via transfer, uh, at least at UConn, I feel like. Um, so I think if they can add a three-point shooter, that really changes the dynamic of this team. It allows Cole and Gaffney to really attack uh, and kick it out for to the shooter or to anyone else for some easy open looks. Cole and Gaffney are going to be fine three-point shooters. Like you said, Cole's better off the dribble. I think Gaffney's really more of a spot-up three guy than someone who can create a shot off a step back or something like that. But um, there's a, a little more offensive talent here than I think people are giving UConn credit for. I do think they need another scoring option, ideally a three-point shooter, but really just any scoring wing or third guard, big guard, preferably could do wonders for this team offensively next season, but defensively, even without Whaley uh, and book Knight, who was a pretty good defender to be totally honest, I think they're going to be okay. Hurley seems like he knows what he's doing on the defensive end uh, and the offensive end as well, but he seems like he really can instill some pretty good defensive instincts into these teams. So I'm not as worried about defense first players. I, I, I think the offense needs some, some more life in it though. I was going to say three-point shooter too, honestly. I mean, it's, it's, if, if you have someone who's a good spot up shooter, um, that's a, like you said, Madigan, just a great thing that you can inject onto a team and know that it's not going to be too um, disruptive to like overall team chemistry to, to just kind of bring in a guy like that. Um, And I would agree what, you know, we both kind of said just that the roster is really well-constructed to this point. Right now, the only thing I would add is, is um, you know, someone who is more of a wing type of player, someone who can guard like threes, fours and fives at the same, you know, at the same time in the same span of two or three minutes in a game, because we know that there is not really a, a traditional, um, uh, there's not a lot of teams now that do kind of even the traditional four and five uh, with big men. So um, I'm, I'm, I was kind of thinking about it. it's like almost like a, I'm looking for like a mix of what Isaiah Whaley and, and Tyler Pauly brought. Uh, someone maybe a little bit more offensive skill than Whaley, but um, uh, someone a little bit sturdier than, than Pauly, you know, so something like that. Amon, what if I told you that player was already on the roster? 
No way. A cook, a cook is the answer. If he comes back, I I can't stress how important a cook, a cook return is to this team. He is an elite defender, an elite shot blocker, maybe even better than Isaiah Whaley. But he can also, like Whaley, guard three, four, and five for sure, and even hedge out on the point guards at times. So I think having him back and injecting him to the starting lineup is really going to solve a lot of problems that might come up from losing, you know, an elite defensive player in Whaley because a cook when he was a freshman was probably a better defender than Whaley. Whaley leapfrogged him this past season, obviously, but a cook is still a talented defender in his own right. His ability to guard multiple positions is invaluable to this team. And it definitely doesn't hurt to add another player of that caliber. uh, But those are a lot harder to find than a three point shooter. Uh, if a cook is fully healthy and, you know, willing to, you know, play the usual load of minutes, uh, like he did as a freshman, I think it changes the trajectory of this team. And I, I think that his, him not playing the season as he was coming back from his Achilles, uh, or playing sparingly rather, uh, really hurt this team at times. And I think if he's back healthy next season, playing quality minutes, it's going to be a huge, it's going to be a huge deal. It's going to make a huge difference for this team. I agree that a cook, a cook is very good. Um, but we haven't, we haven't seen him fully healthy. We know Achilles injuries can be weird. I'm sure the best doctors and many of many great doctors, uh, worked on him and made sure he's recovering as, as safely as possible. But, um, we haven't seen him, uh, anything could happen as I've said, no, I don't have any inside information. Um, but you know, you'd have to imagine a seven foot tall guy who can shoot and has uh, elite athleticism is someone who is also thinking about testing the NBA draft waters too, if he's, if he's fully healthy. So um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to plant any seed or anything like that, but I'm just saying, we don't know. We don't know. I, I of course agree. I, I, at least once a day, I think about the, the, the image of Kimani young yelling to a cook, a cook on the bench. You're the best effing player on this court right now. I think about that. I'm honestly once or multiple times a day and I get so fired up thinking about it and what it could mean for you kind of have someone, you know, someone like that on the court full time, but who knows? Did you, this is so unrelated, but I don't know if you guys just saw, but the, the UConn softball team broke their single season record for stolen bases. And they're like halfway through the season. I saw that. That's wild. It's unbelievable. Yeah. That's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening.